Anthony Yanis, you put the jubilee in that song, my friend. You put the jubilee in that song. <laughs> it's good to be back together, isn't it, after this long, nutty, nutty year we've had. I'm so glad you guys are here. Those of you, are, I got to meet down in Tampa, Florida, our members down there, Susan and others, just super glad that you're with us today. So we were at the largest um, lectureship in our fellowship right up until last night, Julie and I were, uh, in the state of Florida, and they've had as many as 3,000 people. COVID's cut the numbers down a little bit, but we took a group picture. Y'all know that I counted 33 members of North Boulevard who were doing some kind of presentation down at this equipped conference. Um, we just got a group picture. And by the way, about half of those 33 are the children of David and Kristen Hunsaker, uh, who, <laughs> who are replenishing and populating the earth as Jesus commands. It was actually really a cool thing. There was one stretch there where there were four classes being offered, and each of the four classes was being taught by a North Boulevard member down in Orlando, Florida. And a lot of them are still down there leading worship today and doing some teaching and so forth. But uh, Julie and I got back. It was just really cool to be down there. And uh, just awesome to be back with you guys. I hope you know this. Okay, y'all got to let me be able to say stuff like this without you thinking there's any pride, personal pride behind it. But this is the greatest church in the world. And when you travel, you just think, oh, man, look what God has done for us. Hmm. Okay, let me tell you a story that, and I can't recommend the movie. I saw it on TBS and it had been bowdlerized or cleaned up or whatever. And then when I was getting ready for this lesson, I discovered that it was rated R and I don't even know what else in it. So don't ever go watch this movie. There you go. The movie is called Mr. Frost. It came out in 1990. Jeff Goldblum is a serial killer who gets arrested. He's considered psychiatrically whatever. He can't, he's not going to put him in prison. So they put him in a psychiatric hospital. For two years, he's totally silent. Everybody assumes that he's just messed up. Then finally, he starts to speak to a psychiatrist. Now, it's a kind of a horror film, but it's not like gory horror. At least TBS didn't have it that way. And here's the, the short end of the storyline. He has come, and the psychiatrist uh, is the only person that he'll speak to. Uh, I think her name is Mary Baker, the actress. She, um, she, you know, she's asking him questions, and he says to her, I'm the devil. And, you know, her answer is like, yeah, well, Jesus is in the next room over, and the Holy Spirit's over here, and so forth. Well, it turns out in the movie he really is the devil, and that's the whole point of the movie. And what he says to her at some point is, I'm the devil, and I have come because you guys have stopped believing in me. And I've come to prove that I'm real. It's kind of a, the TBS version is a riveting movie, I think. But I don't think that is what the devil's strategy is. He's actually got a better strategy than that. You know what the devil's strategy really is? It's to keep you believing he's not real. Because as long as you don't believe he's real, you won't understand that the actual source of all of our temptations, all of our struggles, all the things that are really hurting us is the devil. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. Our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood. Our temptations, our addictions, our failures, our discouragement, our doubts, the relational disruptions that we experience, the stuff that sets us back. This view of the world that, man, I don't even know where it's going, our fears and our anxieties. Paul says, look, it's not a flesh and blood struggle. It looks flesh and blood to us, but it's not. Instead, Paul says, the real warfare that we fight is against authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. 
What I want to convince you of in the short period of time that I have today is that everything is spiritual. And therefore, every struggle ultimately is a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. These forces are real, they actually exist, and they're doing all sorts of stuff today. When you get it clear in your head, because this is the question I would ask if I were you, does it really matter if I know that this is a spiritual battle or not? Does that really matter? Like I've been fighting the battle for years and maybe I didn't know it's spiritual, what's the difference? When you get it in your head, you understand that it's a spiritual war that we face. Let me tell you what will happen. You will gain great confidence, joy, and hope. You know why? Because when you know the battle spiritual, you'll know who's going to win. When it's just you, when it was just you wrestling with your doubts or just you wrestling with your anxiety, when it was just you wrestling with a marriage that's unhappy or that you just don't like, that you want out of, when it was just you, you weren't sure if you were going to win or not. But when you understand who King Jesus is and that ultimately you have, everybody listen, you have only one enemy and he's already been defeated. When you get that sunk into your heart, it changes everything for us. That's what the Song of Moses is actually about in Ex uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 32. We're going to look at the Song of Moses, and I just want to say, you really have to love a minister who would sing a song to his church. And Moses does this. As he gets to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we're down to three lessons now. As he gets to the end of Deuteronomy, he sings a song to his church. And the whole point of the song is to say, you either follow God or you follow demons. That's it. That's it. There aren't any other choices. Here's one way where it's really helpful for us. Like if you're a Republican, Joe Biden is not your enemy. And if you're a Democrat, Donald Trump was not your enemy. You really only have one enemy, Satan. If you don't like what Biden's doing, if you don't like what Trump did, they're just in bondage to the real enemy. Our job is to set them free from the real enemy. That's why we make disciples. Every time you make a disciple, you set somebody free from the real enemy. If you lose your son or your daughter to the pagan world out there, and by the way, the, our kids, those of us who have adult kids, they are entering the lion's den when they leave our homes. And many of us are losing our kids to the lion's den. And many of us feel all this hurt and the shame and so forth. First of all, I just want to say what I said a couple of weeks ago, which is, it's a lion's den out there. And the perfect father, God the father, the perfect father lost every one of his kids to rebellion. Minus Jesus, of course. But when that happens, remind yourself, your child's not the enemy. The group they hang out with is not the enemy. The influencers on the social media, they're not your enemy. It's Satan who's the enemy. And he has all of them in bondage. And what we want to do is set them free from the enemy. We don't hate them. Who do you hate? We don't hate anybody. We hate only Satan. What I want to do is set the people who consider me because I'm a Bible-believing Christian, the people who consider me an enemy, I love them. They get to go to the front of my line because I want to set them free from the real enemy. The real enemy is the devil. And that's what the Song of Moses is actually about. Now, you need to know that the Song of Moses is actually a dirge. It's a sad song. Um, you know, we used to sing this song. In fact, we just sang it today, I think, on Jordan Stormy Banks. I stand. And, you know, remember how it goes on Jordan Stormy Banks? Where's the, uh, and then in the chorus, he says, sing the song of Moses and the Lamb by a Bible. It's not this song that you're going to sing in heaven because this is not a really happy song. 
But there is a song of Moses in Exodus 15 that you will sing. That's the other song of Moses because he sang to his church more than once because he's such a good minister. Get, let that sink in. He's a really good guy. <laughs> but this is the sad song. This is the country song of the songs of Moses. And essentially Moses says in this song, here's what he says. He says, one day you're going to abandon God. And when you do, I want you to sing this song because this song is going to explain to you why everything went wrong. So it's actually... Um, it's like a memorial song. I'll give you just a quick illustration. One of my dearest friends, uh, Eric Grother and I, went, we were backpacking in Wales. We were backpacking on one of the mountains that Sir Edmund Hillary used to train to climb Mount Everest. It was November the 11th and a hurricane moved in in the country of Wales. In fact, it was so bad that they shut the roads down because cars were blowing off the bridges. And he and I were huddled in a tent on Sir Edmund Hillary's mountain. And, and we had the radio, we had to prop the tent up from the inside because it was laying flat from the wind. But because it was November the 11th, it happened to be what they call Remembrance Day in the UK, which is the, the day that they remember all the fallen soldiers of the First World War. You know, it affected, 50, well, we lose 50,000 uh, 50, maybe US soldiers in World War I, m more than a million British soldiers, entire villages of young men were wiped out. So it's a big deal still there. And they were playing this uh, Carl Jenkins song uh, that's called um, Benedictus. And it's the saddest song. It's a violin. I mean, like we just, all, we just cried all night <laughs> listening to Benedictus as it just kept playing over and over again. And the whole song is sort of like, this is what went wrong. This is what went wrong. Well, Exodus 32 is a song Moses teaches Israel, and he says, when you disobey God, which you're going to do, and when you have to face consequences, which you're going to have to face, sing this song, and it'll remind you of what went wrong. The whole song is premised on this spiritual war, and I want to make sure we understand. If you don't understand the spiritual nature of the warfare you face, you cannot win. I love holding my Bible up when I read it because I like you to see that we're going straight out of the Word of God. But because we do the PowerPoint as well, I, I get all confused trying to look at both of them. So hold your Bible open and I'll feel good about this. Deuteronomy 32. Listen, you heavens. So the first four verses, he just calls on the greatness of God as he sings a song. It's a song. Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Like my, uh, let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, O oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So the, the song starts by saying, remember the whole argument of this song is you can either follow Jesus God in this case, because Jesus not yet revealed. You can follow God or you can serve demons. And I want to make sure you understand that's really the only choice you have too. Everybody get that? You're either following God or you're following a demon. That's not the way we typically think, but that's what this song is about. So he says, beginning of verse 5, and by the way, the they of this sentence is the, uh, the Israelite people. They are corrupt and they're not his children. To their shame, they are warped and a crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord? You foolish and unwise people. You see, this is the song you're supposed to sing after you've abandoned God and you find yourself sitting in sackcloth and ashes. 
Is this how, is this how you repay the Lord? Your father, your creator who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father. He will tell you. Your elders and they will explain to you. By the way, I just want to pause. This is not even the point of the sermon, but I want to pause to say, if I were to preach this on the United States of America, which I think is a fair way to preach this text, but that's not what I've chosen. I would say that the U.S. is in trouble today in part because it has abandoned its God. And what I would say to those of you who are younger is this. Don't get your information off of Instagram and Facebook. Ask some of the older people who remember what it was like. Because that's literally what he says. Go back and ask your fathers about what it was like. And I'm not suggesting that America is always a great nation. Because I will say this. If you're African-American, you have a very different experience of the U.S. But I will say that for many of us, we can remember a time when God was honored in all communities and not so anymore. Ask your fathers, what was it like? What was it like? That's what he says. They'll explain it to you. When the Most High gave uh, the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. In other words, what Moses is saying in his song is, God picked you. Look what you've done. He picked you. And then he describes in these, I mean, literally almost, it makes you choke up to hear how he describes it. God says, look, I picked you. Look what I did for you. Listen to how he describes it. In a desert land, God found Israel. In a barren howling waste, God shielded Israel and cared for Israel. He guarded Israel as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord led him. No foreign God was with God. Why would you go to a foreign God is what he's saying. God didn't need any other God. God did this for you. God made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nursed him with honey from the rock, oil from the flinty crag, with curds. This is yogurt or oil. Or um, um, cottage cheese, which is still a, a delight in the Middle East. With cottage cheese and milk from the herd, the flock, with fatted animals, lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan. Bashan is the Golan Heights. A lot of wheat fields there, a lot of cattle on the, Goshan, uh, the uh, Bashan Heights, the Golan Heights today. The finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. In other words, you had more wine than you knew what to do with. And then he says, Jeshurun, which is a, it's a nickname for the righteous, my righteous son. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked and filled with food. They became heavy and sleek. Again, if I were going to talk to America in this sermon, which I'm really not, what I would say is you have it better than any other people group in the history of humanity anywhere on planet Earth. Now that you're fat, how dare you reject the God who gave you all your wealth? He made you rich. And then you get, became fat and lazy and then you abandoned the God who gave you all that stuff. You rejected your rock. Just you're in a name meaning righteous one. And they made God jealous with their foreign gods. They angered him with their detestable idols. And I'm switching to the ESV here because the NIV obscures, and not deliberately so, but they obscure what actually happens in the Hebrew text. If you have a different translation, you'll notice it says they sacrificed to demons who were no gods. I'm underscoring that because this is the first time in the Bible we discover that idols are actually demons. They're not innocent. An idol's not just a statue. It actually represents a demon. When you worship an idol, this is true in the 21st century, when you worship the idol of greed, you're worshiping a demon. When you worship the idol of sex, you are worshiping a demon. And by the way, the demon's happy to step up. 
That's what he's trying to do anyway. When you worship the idol of yourself, your arrogance, and in your pride, which is the mark of the evil one, arrogance is the mark of Satan. You're worshiping a demon. That's what's being said in this text. And God is saying, you had a choice. You had me who gave you the cows of Bashan. You had me who gave you all the yogurt you could eat. I'm the guy who made your, 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 your grape clusters drip with wine. I gave you this beautiful land. You went to a flinty rock and out came honey. I gave you all that. And you turned and started worshiping a demon. And that's why you're in the shape you're in. That's what this song's about. That's why you're in the shape you're in. That's why you sing this song when you sit in sackcloth and ashes. They sacrificed the demons that were no God, the gods they'd never known, new gods they'd received recently, whom your fathers never dreaded. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sac oh, oh, sorry, I just jumped to another text. I want you to see that Psalm 106 uses the same language. In Psalm 106, we learn that idols are actually demons. We learned this also from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says that the people in the city of Corinth who were eating this, um, I don't want to get too far afield here. When you worship Zeus, the, the, big, the, the big and most impressive um, temple in the city of Corinth was the temple of Apollo, the God. When you worship Apollo, Paul says, you're actually worshiping a demon. When you worship anything other than God, you're worshiping a demon. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 actually says. And then we read this in Revelation 9, that when people worship the Roman gods, they were actually worshiping not just stones, not just wood overlaid with silver or gold or bronze. They were actually worshiping demons. I just want to underscore that. We're going to come back to it, even though we won't have a whole lot of time. But what I want to point out when we come back to it is this. There is a great spiritual battle going on for the souls, the hearts, and the minds of every one of us. And when you get that, you'll be in a position to win. Verse 18, you deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this, and God rejected Israel because he was angered by his sons and daughters. And this is what God says. I'm going to hide my face from them. I'll see what their end will be. They're a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God. They angered me with their worthless idols. I'll make them envious by those who are not his people. I'll make them, uh, uh, them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire will be kindled by my wrath, one that burns down to the realm of the dead below. It will devour earth with its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap, heap calamities on them. I'll spend my arrows against them. I'll send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. By the way, I just pause to say this. Who sent the pandemic in this text? Who sent the pandemic? Satan? Not in this, pan not in this text. God sent it. I counted when the pandemic broke out. There's something around 100 references to pandemics in the Bible. And in 99 of the 100, it's God who sent it. Just saying. And you know why? Because he wants us to wake up. And actually, I think the pandemic we've gone through, as terrible as it's been, the people we love that we've lost, as far as I, by my count, four members of North Boulevard have died due to complications of the pandemic. It may also be that God is saying, wake up, wake up. Your time on this earth is not forever, and I need your allegiance, and I need it now. 
So he says, I, I'll send a deadly plague. I'll send against them the fangs of the wild beasts, the venom of the vipers that slide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign. The young men and young women will perish, the infants and those with gray hair. And then he says this. This is actually kind of a, this is a hopeful statement. You don't recognize it at first. But he, God's saying, he's saying, you know, I was going to wipe them out. That's what he's saying here. I was going to wipe them out. Listen to how he puts it. I said I would scatter and erase their name from human history, but I dreaded the taunt of the enemy. In other words, the only reason I didn't wipe you out is because I didn't want the Babylonians to think that they are better than I am. That's the only reason I left you around. Because of the taunt of the enemy. Lest the adversary uh, misunderstand and say, our hand has triumphed. The Lord has not done all of this. I'm going to finish the text. Then he just sort of wraps up by saying, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? We have the Lord God Almighty on our side. Why would we pick a demon? Why pick a demon? They're a nation without sense. There's no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. How could one man chase a thousand? This is a graphic way of saying one soldier will come to town and a thousand men will run for their lives. That's how bad it's going to get. That's what he's describing. How could one man chase a thousand or two men put a 10,000 to flight unless their rocket's sold? That is, unless I had done it, unless the Lord had given them up. For their rock is not like our rock. And even their enemies concede. Even the enemies know God is better than their gods. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison, clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed in my vaults? This is a simple way of God saying, I have decreed it. It's going to happen. And when I make a decree, it doesn't go back. It's mine to avenge, God says, and I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. The day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. I want to pause here for just a second. We're almost done with our text, but I want you to see that two different times the New Testament quotes Deuteronomy 32 and verse 25. Two times the New Testament quotes this. And here's my question. Why would the New Testament quote this verse? By now, I hope you know, but this is a good teachable moment. Why would the New Testament quote Deuteronomy 32 and verse 25? Here's one quote. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, live at peace. As much as it lies within you, live at peace with everybody. Then he says, do not take revenge. He's quoting from our, our song right now, he says, do not take re revenge, leave room for God's wrath for it's written, I will revenge, I will repay. When you go over to Hebrews chapter 10, a very similar thing is said. Uh, we know that God says that God will revenge so we don't have to repay. Why does the New Testament quote the Old Testament? And here's the answer, because the Old Testament is your book. It's our book. Paul puts it this way in Romans 15 verse 4, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Deuteronomy is for Christians. You know why I want to say that? Because though we're only three lessons left from Deuteronomy, we've got, I've gotten some fascinating feedback on this sermon series. All of it good. Many of you have said, it's just been really awesome to work verse by verse through these, one of the strangest books in the Bible, Deuteronomy. A few of you have said, it's kind of getting boring. Can you move on? And what I know you're saying is that, you know, it's, it keeps repeating itself. And I have to agree with you. In fact, it repeats itself a whole lot. And it makes it kind of hard to preach because it's like, well, you know, every chapter is curses. Like you have to get really creative after a while to kind of sound good about a sermon. And it could be that I'm boring and preaching it. But one or two of you said, why are we studying Deuteronomy? That's not our book. That's Old Testament. Okay, to you, I just want to say as lovingly as I can, no, it's not. It's your book. 
the reason that we are studying Deuteronomy is because all 66 books of the Bible are our books. And all 66 books of the Bible are for us so that we can learn endurance, so we can be encouraged. And that's why the New Testament twice quotes this text. The Old Testament is still true. Verse 36. The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants. Uh, Let me come back to this first in a second. When he sees their strength gone and no one is left slave or free, he will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them give you shelter. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death. I bring to life. I wound and I heal, and nobody can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to the heaven and solemnly swear as surely as I live forever. When I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries, and I will repay those who hate me. I'll make my arrows drunk with blood. While my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain captives, the heads of the enemy leaders, And then we have one verse left in the Song of Moses. One verse left, verse 43. And God does what he does every single time. This is your God. He says, I saved you. I alone. I made you fat. You abandoned me for a bunch of demons. And then he gets to the end of his song and he says, but I'm going to find a way to get you back. Like the last verse of the song is, is is the verse of hope. I'm not done with you yet. Rejoice, he says, O nations, with this people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. That is, I will come back. I'll get you again. I will take vengeance on your enemies, and I will make atonement before it's over. In other words, God says, look, you're going to have to face the consequences of your sinfulness, but I'm never going to give up on you. You're my children, and I'm not going to stop chasing you. I'm going to chase you to the ends of the earth if I have to. If you have sons and daughters who have left Jesus, if you have a husband or wife who's left Jesus, if you're on the process of leaving Jesus, if you left Jesus and you're just visiting today, I just want you to know God is not going to stop chasing you or that person until you finally say, enough, stay away from me. And even then, he's going to be standing at the door knocking. He never stops chasing us. And that's how the Song of Moses ends. And so Moses came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke with all the words of the song in the hearing of the people. And when he finished reciting all the words to Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words I've solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. And then the last verse that we'll cover today, this sweet verse. He says, my words, these words are not just idle words. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. So the whole point of the Song of Moses, and remember there is one in Exodus 15 that's also called the Song of Moses, and that one is more of a victory song. This one is more a dirge. You won't sing this one in heaven. You won't have a reason to sing this one in heaven. The whole point, let me put it this way, guys, We're facing all the temptations we ever faced. In so many ways, there are heightened temptations. The technologies that we've developed as a people are both a blessing and a profound curse. 
It explains why. So as we were speaking to Orlando yesterday, I said this to one of the crowds. I said, um, the average American begins to look at porn regularly at the age of 11. So we have teenagers up here. I hope this is not true, but the average teenager has been looking at porn for probably two, three, four, eight years. And they're looking at it on the cell phone that you gave them. That's what's changed. I said that at, my, at one of these conferences, and an older guy came up to me and said, you know what, when we were, the first thing he said is when I was young, porn was looking at the J.C. Penney's catalog. And uh, he said, but if you really wanted porn, you had to drive to the worst part of town, to some place behind a factory, and you had to brave all the people who were there and had to sneak in. By the way, after you told me that, I was thinking, wow, you really sound like you know what you're talking about there. <laughs> Pretty descriptive. Uh, but um, here's, here's what's changed in America. All of a sudden, all the temptations are now one click away from us. I mean, there's so many temptations in front of us. There's so many opportunities for hurt and pain and failure. I don't know that marriages have gotten worse in the last hundred years. I just know that we have so many expectations that are unsatisfied that there are a lot more divorces. I know that there are a whole lot more abandoned children today than there ever were. I know that it appears at least that mental health issues are much higher than they were even 30 years ago. But in addition to all of that, which we've had to deal with, we're now in a culture that's pretty hostile towards us, in a culture that wants to cancel our voices. Uh, HR department at some of your corporations are making sure that if you say the wrong thing on Facebook, you're going to get fired. Uh, we have universities that are openly hostile towards us, politicians who are openly hostile towards Christian positions. Now, all of a sudden, it, you really, um, it's really gotten tough. And here's what I want to say. The whole point of the song is to say this. You remember what Joshua said? Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living or the gods of the Egyptians in whose land you just left. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Guys, here's what I'm saying. Your Joshua moment has arrived. And we have to make a decision. We will either serve the one true God or we will serve demons. Those are your only choices. And if you think you're not serving a demon, you most certainly are. All the things we pursue, there's a demon behind all these things. And so when we understand it as spiritual warfare and not just me being a human, just me being weak and so forth, that's a real spiritual battle, it equips us to win. So let me just give you uh, just a couple of things. I, I'm about done, but I just want to run through these quickly. First, I want to make sure that we all get it. Everything is spiritual. Underneath, inside, next to, all above, I don't know the right language, everything is the spiritual, underneath everything, behind everything, behind shoes, behind motives, behind jobs, behind pews, you name it, behind, within, underneath, above, in some way or another, everything is spiritual. Let me just show you a few verses that will help you see this. When David took a census of the people because of his arrogance, he wanted to prove how many soldiers he had. The Bible says that it was Satan who incited David. David didn't just decide to do it. Satan actually incited him. When we read of Jesus' ministry, one of the qualifying characteristics of Jesus' ministry is that everywhere he went, he fought against demons. By the way, these aren't mental illnesses. These are spiritual beings. They are actual powers that inhabit the world and that whisper in people's ears lies and deceit in order to get us to stop worshiping the one true God in whose image we've been created so that we'll start worshiping a lie. You know why? 
Because the devil hates you and he has a terrible plan for your life. And that's why he does what he does. Here in Luke 11, here's a woman who's been crippled for 18 years. And Luke says that she was crippled by a spirit. And even Jesus says this woman's been bound for 18 years by Satan. When Jesus sends out the apostles, he gives them three things. First, he says, I want you to be with me. I want you to preach and I want you to get out there and drive out those demons. In John chapter 13, when Judas decides to, uh, to betray Jesus, he's motivated by Satan who entered his heart. Ananias and Sapphira who, who lied about a contribution they were making to the church. Peter looks at Ananias in the eyes and says, man, Satan has filled your heart. I want you guys to see it's all spiritual. These aren't coincidences. These aren't just physics. It's not biology or chemistry in motion. These are spiritual battles that we face. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, every lost person in the world is following the ruler of the kingdom of air who is the spirit now at work in the disobedient. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy in verse 1, Paul says, when you start hearing people teach things that are not biblical, they will be teaching the doctrines of demons. Do you see that it's spiritual? That's what I'm trying to get you to see. Everything is spiritual. There's a great cosmic spiritual war going on between the Lord God and his angels, and you have an angel watching over you. There's an angel sitting next to you right now. And the spiritual forces of evil, the devil and his arrogance, because that's the primal sin of the evil one, is arrogance, pride, and all of his demons. James chapter 3. James says, if you're looking for good wisdom... Don't get your wisdom from the world because that kind of wisdom, he says, is demonic. We read in 1 John chapter 4 that there are a lot of spirits out there and some of them are false spirits. We read that one of the indicators of the end of time is that you're going to see a lot more demons out there working miracles. I'm just wanting you to see from all of this that the Bible is replete with references to spiritual warfare because if we think... The devil doesn't really exist or he's just a metaphor. He's not a real thing because that's what you want to believe in enlightenment America. Uh, look, everybody preaches, you know, about God, but not many people want to talk about demons because really, really, do they really exist? As long as you think that, you are giving your hand to the enemy. They're real. They're at work. They want you to die. They hate you. They want to take you to hell with them because that's where they're all going. And because of their arrogance and their hatred for God and all that's good, they'd sure love to drag you down with them. Recognize everything is spiritual and identify the real enemy. The real enemy is the devil. Let me tell you how beautiful this is. This, this is so life-saving when you get this truth. I think in the U.S., the hostility is on the rise, increasing, and we could really find ourselves in some very difficult situations. It makes me angry, but I have to remind myself who to be mad at. You know who I'm mad at? I'm mad at Satan because he's the only enemy I have. If you disagree with me politically or culturally, you're not my enemy. Satan's my enemy. When, when, so when we get out on Facebook and Twitter and all this and we're out there screaming at each other, you're screaming at the wrong person. Scream at Satan. He's the enemy. If you've got a, a family member who's, who's really abandoned biblical Christian principles, they're not your enemy. You know what? Not only are they not your enemy, but look, they've been blinded by your enemy. 
The goal is to set them free from your enemy. Like the very first person that we want to disciple is the guy who thinks we're an enemy. Bring him to the front of the line. I've said this before. If you have a different view than what I view on gender and sexuality, which I think my view comes straight out of the Bible, I want you to come to my office. You get to go to the front of my line. And I don't mind telling you why. Because I think you might be the number one prospect in my life for helping you find a Jesus who has set me free from some of my sins and can help you as well. That we've got a common enemy, and the common enemy is the devil, not one another. In fact, here's how Paul puts it. Let's rescue each other from the trap that the devil sets. We only have one enemy, and it's Satan. It's not one another. And number three, be on your guard. Because as Peter says, the enemy is like a lion. He's roaring. He's looking for somebody he can eat. And I'll tell you two areas that the devil gets you at. One is your weakness. You already knew that. If you've had a drug or alcohol issue, if you've had some kind of addiction, porn addiction, whatever it is, he's going to hit you there. That's your weakness. And here's the surprising thing. You know the other place that the devil hits you? In your strength. Have, Have you noticed that? Like let's say you're really good at something. The devil's going to come after you and make you proud and arrogant. That's your strength. This is what happens to ministers. When you hear about ministers who fall away, in almost every case, you know what happened to them? And their strength was their ministry. I was talking, that's, honestly, I was talking to a guy um, that's not too long ago, minister, really struggling with alcohol. I'm not saying he drinks. I'm saying he's got an alcohol problem. His church doesn't know it. And he's saying, I don't know what to do about it. And I looked at him and I said, okay, I've been in ministry 40 years. I, I can tell you why you have an alcohol problem. I said, here's why. Because you feel like you've given every, life, every hour of your life, every hour you have, you've given it to somebody else in ministry. That's true. We're always on call. I said, you feel like you give everything you have to somebody else. And what you're thinking in your head is, I deserve something myself. I deserve something. And he looked at me and said, well, how in the world would you know that? And I said, because I'm a minister. Like at some point you just think, man, I've given everything I've got. I deserve something in this life. And so you start to rationalize your sins. That's the lion coming not after your weakness, coming after your strength. He'll come after your family. He'll come after your relationship with your child. He'll come after your relationship with your husband or your wife. He'll come after your church. He comes after your strength. North Boulevard is doing awesome right now. I'm just saying, again, I don't want to brag, but you're an awesome church. We're doing great. So you know what the devil's going to do? He's going to come after us. That's what he does. Like he doesn't worry about the weak churches. Well, I worry about the weak ones. He's looking for the strong ones. And number four, beware of his primary weapon. I've said this multiple times. So in the Bible, the devil at times, demons literally possess people. I've actually ministered to maybe a dozen situations in 40 years of ministry where I really wrestled with someone that I'm, I'm convinced was possessed by a demon. But that's pretty uncommon for me. The truth is I wrestle with demons all the time and they're in my life. It's the temptations I face. It's the failures I have. And they have one common element to them. You know what it is? They lie to me. Cancer. The devil doesn't cause cancer, but I'll tell you what he does. When you get your cancer diagnosis, you know what the devil does? He says, you know why you got cancer? Because you're such a worthless person. That is the devil lying to you. 
You get cancer and the devil says, well, there you go. You know, one out of every two dies. You're not going to live much longer. Or he'll say this, when you were 26 years old and you did such and such, now that's why you got cancer today. That's what the devil does. He lies to us. When you have a situation in your family and somebody's really hurting in your family, you know what the devil says? The devil says, you failure, you were never worth anything. You were destined for failure. That's the devil. That's what demons do. And you know what you say back to them? Tell them to go to hell. That's where they're headed. You say, hey, you know what? I got a Savior who put a ring on my finger and said, I am his child. He has forgiven me. He has given me his grace. And you can go to hell because that's where you're going. That's where you're going. Don't let the demons lie to you. Don't listen to their lies. When they tell you that you can sin, it's no big deal, doesn't matter. You tell them, no, I'm not going with you. That's their number one tool. When the devil speaks, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. I'm going to skip this. Not because it's no good, because I'm out of time. My next point, use spiritual weapons. The fight we fight is a spiritual fight. The fight you fight is not between you and your spouse or you and your parents or you and your boss or you and the school board or whatever. The fight we fight is a spiritual battle. Truth is on our side. Rightness is on our side. Good news of peace, faith, salvation, the Word of God. And then very important, prayer. If you want to win a spiritual battle, you better be a person of prayer. Like I don't know how to emphasize that enough because prayer is how we engage the Holy Spirit. And this battle is only going to be won by the Holy Spirit. This battle will only be won by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? You all with me? Are you still struggling over the fact that I said the devil can go to hell? Because you don't hear that language in church much. And after I said it, I thought maybe I shouldn't have said that. And I'm not joking now. But I've just had enough time to think about it. And I'm going to say it again. When he tempts you, tell him to go to hell. That's where he's going. And we're not going to follow him there either. We're not going to follow him there. He can go to the home that he made for himself when he rose up and said to God, which is what he did. He rose up and said to God, I am better than you are. And he made his own hell and he's not taking us with him. He's not taking us with him. And then let me give you this, the last one. Remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. This is what David said when David met Goliath, who was nine feet tall in a world where the average person was four foot ten. David's looking at a guy who's literally twice his size. He said, yeah, nice sword there, nice shield. You know, you're a big old guy, aren't you, big dude? I just want to make sure you understand something, Mr. Goliath. This battle belongs to the Lord. Now, that's why it matters that we understand we're in a spiritual war. That's what the Song of Moses is about. You get to pick. You're going to stand with God or you can stand with demons. You guys have picked to stand with God. Now, (laughs) your Joshua moment's here. Stand by the decision, stand by the commitment you already made because he's already secured the victory. I'm done, but I got to say this. When's the last time you watched a Clint Eastwood movie and said to yourself, I wonder if Clint Eastwood's going to win or lose? (laughs) Never. He never dies. He always wins and he always kills everybody else. The only question when you watch an Eastwood film is, how's he going to do it? Because you already know, you know the end of the story. Every time you sit down, whether he's a police officer, whether he's a cowboy, whether he's delivering drugs, whatever it is, he always wins. 
Eastwood wins. Okay, God's not like that in one sense, but in another sense. I've read the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. I've read that book, and you know what it says? You won. The last chapter of your life's already written, and you won. Now live like it. Let's sing a song.